Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields, such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 18, Resilience is Gold. Gold has always been sought after. It is prized in making jewelry, currency, and even idols of worship in the past. But gold is not known for its stability, so we don't use gold in engineering for the built environment. In the field of structural engineering, our gold is resilience. Well said, Audrey. And building a structure to be resilient doesn't have to be as costly as gold either. To stretch the analogy even further, resilience may also be worth its weight in gold. Having reserves and financial resources after a disaster is great, of course, but no amount of money can get a damaged building up and running immediately. When essential goods and services are needed to help a community recover, the most valuable resource is time, and having a resilient building that never shuts down could be as important as Fort Knox. So it makes sense that this podcast focuses on a building that achieved the USRC's highest rating, Platinum, and which coincidentally is where the state of Oregon stores its gold, at least virtually, its treasury building. For today's episode, we have another panel discussion. This one is about the treasury building in Oregon. Let's find out why resilience is important to them. First off, we have Byron Williams. He's the chief administrative officer here at the Oregon State Treasury. And I oversee a lot of these central services functions at Treasury. And part of that portfolio is our facilities and emergency operations, continuity of operations planning. And so this, this project really fell under a couple of different areas in there uh, of looking at how we can best support our staff with the facilities we provide, but also making sure our business units can provide the essential services to Oregonians that they need. Next up, Craig Stockbridge. I'm with GBD Architects here in Portland, Oregon, and I'm a principal with GBD and the principal architect on the Oregon State Treasury Office Building. I've been practicing here in Oregon for just about 25 years, and uh, this is the first uh, resilient building of this kind that we've done. Last but not least, Reed Zimmerman. I'm the technical director for KPFF in Portland, Oregon. I'm a structural engineer and served on the Oregon State Treasury Building as uh, one of the lead structural engineers. I have never been to Oregon, yet alone the Oregon State Treasury Building. Can you paint a picture of it for us? The Oregon State Treasury Office Building is uh, 34,000 square feet, uh, type A office. It's a two-story building. It is going to be a lead gold equivalent and net zero, as well as USRC Platinum. Some of the early on goals that came from the client was that create a building that is warm, welcoming, inviting to the public, 
and healthy and feels good to work in on a regular basis. So as you walk into the building, you feel like you're walking into a state-of-the-art building, but it's not lavish or flashy. The natural lighting that is continued throughout the building is uh, open and airy. And the building um, is super insulated and super efficient. What is the backstory of the Oregon State Treasury project? So about six years ago, there started to be a lot more press in Oregon regarding the risks to Oregonians from a Cascadia earthquake. And prior to that, a lot of people didn't really think of Oregon as a, a high earthquake risk area. A lot of us thought of, oh, earthquakes are a California problem. We let them deal with that. That's why we live in Oregon. And so as we started looking uh, at the, the infrastructure in the state of Oregon that's available for state government, we recognized that seismic risk really was a, an unmitigated risk point in, in a state's portfolio. And so really it's caused us to, to recognize we needed to do more to be prepared and starting to try to find ways to to do that. The state treasurer is a, a statewide elected official overseeing that's responsible for overseeing the state's banking, debt management, and investment activities. This last year, we processed just almost $300 billion in banking transactions on behalf of the state. Most of the activity that goes on for state governments and a lot of local government activity really is centralized through our office. And so in an emergency, we need to make sure we are up and running to make sure those dollars continue to flow out to the necessary critical functions to Oregonians. I know a rainy day fund is always a good idea in case things don't go as planned. But I don't think that would be enough to keep a whole state's economy running. How did you approach this? We found a way to be able to leverage a number of different pieces that we were able to bring to the table so that we could actually get this done, move forward, and in a, a scale that could be done in a reasonable time frame. If you went any smaller, you know, it wasn't cost effective. If you went bigger, it was started to get cost prohibitive, but also time prohibitive. And trying to get everyone on board to all the pieces became problematic. And so we really found as we learned some initial kind of lessons that dialing in where's that sweet spot for us on big enough to be effective, but small enough to be effective. So what is the Cascadia subduction zone? Is it as well known as the San Andreas fault is to Californians? Yeah, great question. The Cascadia subduction zone, it's a fault that exists off the coast of Oregon, Washington, and Northern California. And that subduction zone type fault is different than, say, the San Andreas Fault that people are in California are familiar with. That's a strike fault, meaning the pieces of the Earth's crust are sliding past each other. In a subduction zone fault, the, one of the plates is being pushed underneath the other and actually is forced down into the mantle and then dissolved. The thing about subduction zones is that they produce larger uh, magnitude events than strike-slip uh, faults do. So even though the San Andreas uh, is capable of reducing a very large earthquake, uh, it's actually smaller than the Cascadia subduction zone. Does the Cascadia subduction zone only affect people living in Oregon, or does it impact multiple locations? If we get a full rupture along the full Cascadia subduction zone from Northern California up into uh, Southern British Columbia, Canada, uh, that's capable of producing a greater than magnitude nine earthquake. So that full rupture event, in addition to producing a very large earthquake, also has a very large aerial extent. So we could see uh, metropolitan areas, including Seattle and Portland, affected simultaneously, which would be very disruptive. A lot of times, 
after earthquakes, we rely upon outside help. We rely upon unaffected areas to come in and, and provide some of those resources and some of that assistance that we can't provide for ourselves. And with the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, uh, we may be on our own. What sparked your interest in performance-based design? You know, our initial analysis was looking at our current building and what does it take to make this building more functional for what we needed going forward? And as we started looking at that and doing the risk assessment, it's really when we started to realize the level of risk that we had in the current building. And as about that same time, the state's Department of Administrative Services was doing a presentation to the legislature about the state's portfolio of buildings statewide. So out of about 2,500 buildings, about 70% of those aren't built to current building codes. We have a very old inventory of buildings. That puts us at a significant risk for seismic events, that those buildings aren't even to the current life safety standards. And I was fortunate that I have two staff members that actually used to work in the agency that oversees the building codes program in Oregon. And so they were able to bring some of the building code staff and really start those discussions with us internally and help us to realize that we need to make sure we were asking the right questions. It wasn't just about making sure we had a building built to building codes or that it was built to the building codes for an essential facility. We wanted to make sure that we were getting to that immediate occupancy and operational level. What's the difference between life safety, immediate occupancy, and operational occupancy? Those are difficult concepts to understand. And it took you know me and my team some, a good amount of time to really get to where we felt somewhat comfortable with them. A lot of the common discussion is, well, what happens in a Cascadia event? Getting to understand that that's not a truly answerable question or even really the question we should have been asking. So how is the Portland Treasury building different from a typical office building? Uh, the typical office building in, at least in the Portland metropolitan area, likely is a steel frame structure or maybe even a wood frame structure, depending on its height. And as we talked about before, uh, the objective of that building and a seismic event would be life safety or collapse prevention, depending on the level of earthquake that you're considering. And obviously that wasn't an acceptable performance objective for this structure. In the early stages of the process, we actually looked and worked together to look at different solutions. How did you plan on achieving the USRC Platinum rating? Was it challenging? The base isolation and the USRC Platinum uh, was really easy to work towards um, once we knew that was a prerequisite, essentially. Being able to know that day one made our process much more efficient. We would have needed to go really back to the drawing board if we had found out that later in the design process because it affects every discipline in the building. I think Byron said it best, which is that it's knowing which questions to ask at the beginning of the process. So setting yourself up at the beginning to not say, I want an earthquake-proof building because that's essentially unattainable. We can get you very, very close, which is what's been done for the Treasury Resiliency Building. But it's important to think about not just uh, a single event. The magnitude nine could happen tomorrow, could be happen while we're sitting on this call. Uh, it could also happen in none of our lifetime. So you have to think about uh, that really large event, and you have to think about the events leading up to it, smaller earthquakes that can't be uh, very disruptive as well. And you also have to consider the fact that you could do all of this work um, and the, it could never be needed. That's so true. 
You can't know what's going to happen. I think for us, we realize that we serve a critical function in the state that often is invisible to people. You don't think about it. Um, it's those types of things that are just kind of sitting in the background that, we're, that aren't necessarily the front lines of impact, but that enable everything else to keep moving as it is. And we really saw that as, as that key mission and the critical function we had to make sure we could provide no matter what. What was your approach to doing that? There's not a lot of examples in Oregon of base isolated buildings. There's a longevity issue of how long are you going to be in that building if you're a corporate entity? How long is it really going to last you? And one of the key pieces was looking at how do you control requirements and costs? This was about how do we get the most effective building over its lifespan that's going to be outside of my work career? You know, this building should outlast me. It should outlast my children. Its impacts on Oregon will be for generations. We had to keep those pieces in mind and really keep them through everything from requirements to looking at carbon sequestration, energy efficiency, being net zero, all those things are intertwined that this really allowed us to be able to have some of those hard discussions. So the main goal is to design a building that can outlive you. How do you budget all these funds? As a public entity, we, we do keep a very close eye on the dollars. I want to make sure we're being prudent managers of those uh, stewards of those dollars. And so we went ahead and contracted with our own cost consulting firm. And so through stage of the process, as we would get you know, pricing in from the general contractor, we then had our own estimator going through looking at the takeoff list and giving us an independent analysis of what they thought was a reasonable price. The design team had that information. The owner was getting the information when we were. He was seeing the information. We were seeing the information. The developer had it. Everybody was there seeing the same pieces, having the same discussions in the room. So we were making an accurate decision. And I think that really enabled those discussions to, to weigh those trade-offs because it's not a one-for-one. One. That's unusual. For a client to be getting estimates on their own while the bidding is going on? Craig, was this beneficial to your process? It is uh, uh, critical that their feedback comes early in the process versus late in the process. Can you imagine if we put together a set of documents that went out for hard bid and find out it's something that we can't afford or something that doesn't meet USRC Platinum? So getting the subcontractor feedback early on the process as well as the general contractor was vital. That makes sense. Catch all the mistakes before the team goes on with the plans. Byron, how did this track with your vision for the budget? From an accounting standpoint, that was something we had to make sure we had kind of tracked. Their feedback to us was based on a number of other state of Oregon projects they've been working on, as well as some private sector kind of comparables. They would have priced a typical building at around $350 to $400 a square foot. Compared to the design cost then, we ended up right around $950 to $1,000 a square foot. You know, And that's not something I think we are embarrassed by. We recognized going into this that we either did it right or we didn't do it at all. And that if we did it halfway, we we're going to have an expensive building that really didn't get us where people needed us to be. And so we were committed to making sure we went to the level that was necessary without being extravagant. How did you decide between having a resilient building and a cost-efficient building? We saw studies out there were saying, oh, you can do base isolation for a 3 to 5% cost increase, 5 to 10% cost increase. And there was this, oh, well, if we can do it that cheap, let's just do it and move on. Well, base isolated building doesn't necessarily mean it's resilient. As we started to define how do we define resilience and what does that mean to us, I think that's really what drove that final cost number. Um, but ultimately, that was kind of the cost premium. It's about two and a half times what would have been just a general class A. But we also have a building that should last for 100 years. 
And a class A building wouldn't have been half of that. There is a lifetime benefit to that. And so as you look at that lifetime cost, our analysis was that it is a net benefit. That is cheaper for us to do this up now. The construction costs will bear out over time. But the benefits to society will far outweigh those pieces. This sounds like a pretty unique project. How did it turn out? Did it go the way you hoped it would? It has kind of shown an, a model that that I feel really works and really does set an example, not just in Oregon but nationwide, on how these how projects where you have unique requirements can be handled. The requirement set that we have here isn't going to be the same as what you're going to have in the Midwest, but they're going to have their own set of issues they're going to, have to deal with. And as they look at these pieces, the model still works. Craig. How does the Oregon Treasury Building Project relate to your approach with other projects of yours? The collaboration process is very similar how we approach to most projects.、Uh, this one is a little bit more scientific and hands-on, that's for sure. But it's not a matter of if, but when the big one comes. And so,、uh, important facilities like this must consider base isolation. And in resiliency, we kind of nicknamed this building "Earth, Wind, and Fire" because there's so many elements that it can combat and resist. And so, it's not just wildfires and pandemics and、uh, floods, but it's also, you know, potentially volcanoes and other elements that are just sometimes out of our control.、And、so, this building is really designed to resist the elements and strives for that hundred-year、uh, resiliency. Reed, what do you think the important takeaways were? I think that oftentimes you see case studies like this, and you think it's an all or nothing, right? For this building, there were really intense requirements、uh, surrounding the performance that was targeted for、uh, after a seismic event. But I think the the advantage of the USRC rating system is being able to slide、uh, and do cost benefit within that range. So I think the lesson takeaway from here is that there are solutions when you bring together the right team to get you all the way to that really enhanced performance. But it doesn't mean that it's super enhanced performance or code minimum. Finding the sweet spot、uh, and finding the low hanging fruit to improve your performance with minimal additional cost, I think, is a lesson for all buildings, be it the one we're discussing here today or one that is not as critical. Evan. Byron, Craig, and Reed were great. They gave us so much insight into the behind-the-scenes work of making the Oregon State Treasury Building super resilient. From the design process to the economical factors to the structural engineering plan, and even into the workings of the treasury itself, we got the whole picture. Now I understand what it takes to get a USRC Platinum rating. It's not easy to be sure. Only the most critical buildings for a government or a business are likely to need or achieve a platinum rating, where the building is expected to be operational within at most a week after a major disaster. The USRC expects that perhaps five percent of buildings would qualify for a platinum rating. However, as the panel explained, with a well-considered design and thoughtful engineering, achieving the USRC's highest ratings, platinum and gold, does not have to cost significantly more. So who knows? Maybe in the future, these types of buildings will become more common. Cool. So who's going to be your next interview? Cheryl Rabinovich is an expert in local public policy and what it takes to bring resilience into our communities. 
She offers some very helpful thoughts that local jurisdictions can use to implement resilient strategies for both new and existing buildings. Great, looking forward to it. For more resources and information about the Oregon State Treasury Building, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Cheryl Rabinovich.